Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. This text this morning is the beginning of a very long uh, set of genealogies in the Old Testament. And if you're like most people, genealogies are long and boring and complicated. And there's no judgment there. It, they are definitely long and they can be boring. Uh, but what we were hoping today is that we will catch some illumination from these. And the first is that what I read to you reveals a culmination of both of the creation stories from Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the first one reiterates some of the things we hear, that God created humankind in God's likeness, named them humankind, and blessed them, and that they were created in pairs, male and female. But then the second creation story is definitely the more salacious and juicy one. That's the one where Adam and then Eve are created. And then they set about having shenanigans in the garden. And it's there that we get the encounter with the serpent and the eating of the forbidden fruit and the fallout from that. And that story quickly transitions into one about their first two children, Cain and Abel, who are missing in the genealogy I just read to you. Sometimes we even forget that there are links between the scriptures so that after the story of Adam and Eve, then came the story of Cain and Abel, who were not very good siblings to one another, and up until the point that Cain actually murders his brother Abel. And we forget that the story isn't over, that then Adam and Eve have another child, and that child is Seth. Cain is cast out and wanders the world and starts his own genealogy. But Seth is the line through which we will trace not only the genealogy that leads us to King David, but the genealogy in the New Testament that will lead us to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we explore this, something dramatic happens in that little passage I read to you. It says that Adam was created in the image of God, and in that likeness was he made. But then when Adam has Seth, suddenly Seth is not in the image of God, but Seth is the image of his father. Adam had lived 130 years when he became the father of a son in his likeness, the scriptures say. And all of a sudden, in one generation, the emphasis is not on our divine parent, but our earthly one. And the reason that we're reading and exploring this text this morning is that as we are continuing this series on origin stories, on ideas of how creation happened, we've already explored creationism and evolutionism, but today we're going to talk about one that sets some Christians on edge, and that is Darwinism a subset of evolutionism. Evolution has many different sub-theories that explain how the evolution began or how it happens or what the consequences of evolution are. But Charles Darwin, for whom we get Darwinism, gave us one possibility. And who is Charles Darwin? Sometimes if you're looking in from the outside, it seems like Charles Darwin is some kind of enemy of Christianity that he's some person that created this theory that is simply to deny the existence of God. And while that may be one perception that we are afforded in our modern discourse, that is hardly accurate. 
In fact, if we take time, which I believe we are called to do as Christians, to continually look back over our past, to read the past of other believers who have come before us, and to take a look at where we have succeeded and where we could do better, and especially where we have failed. What we find is that the way we have framed Charles Darwin, sometimes within and outside of Christianity, has not been just and certainly isn't righteous. So who is this Charles Darwin for whom Darwinism is named? He was a British subject. He was born and lived and died in the 1800s during Victorian England. And there he was born into a family that were free-thinking Unitarians. Now, free-thinking meaning that they believe that you should use the gift of the rational mind, just like modern United Methodists. But they were Unitarians, which is something that was from Christianity but had diverged significantly. And that is that Unitarians don't believe in the Trinity, which is a core foundational principle of Trinitarian Christianity, of which Catholics and the Orthodox and the Episcopalians and the Lutherans and the Methodists and the Baptists find ourselves. Unitarians believe that there is just unity in God, and so therefore it negates the divinity of Jesus. This is a major divergence for us. And so this is already one thing that separated Charles from many of Christians nowadays, is that if we believe in the Trinity, and that is a huge part of how we understand ourselves, God, and the world, then already Charles was starting on a different path. And while he had experiences with Christianity, his parents did eventually kind of flirt with Anglicanism in the Church of England and have him baptized, and at one point he thought maybe he would like to be clergy, but what he really discovered was a passion for nature. He discovered that the sciences that allowed him to explore the animals and the birds and the insects and the way of life that is unimpeded by humankind was such a passionate joy to him that that was where his path went. And ultimately, he ended up going on a journey around the world on a ship called the Beagle. And it was there that he experienced the Galapagos Islands, many different islands that had species of which he was familiar but each island had a unique version of that species. And now suddenly he recognized that there were differences between how the animals were living on the mainland and how they were living on each of those islands. As if in isolation, surrounded by water, they had become something slightly different than their neighbors on other islands and their ancestors on the mainland. And this boggled his mind, but it also gave him creative endeavors that he wanted to explore. He wanted to know more. He was taking samples and making observations and writing them down. All things that we would applaud in modern science and certainly things that we engage in even in Christianity, that we pay attention to our surroundings and to others. We take notes and we look to see how we can assist them, whether through the ministries of the church, the missions of the church, or just our acts of kindness and mercy. And so Charles Darwin came back to his home country and he started to think about the ways in which his experiences and his encounters with nature could somehow be conceptualized with what he knew and what he thought he understood and that didn't quite mesh with what he had been taught. Because even though his family were not Trinitarian Christians, they did abide by a principle that many Christians Trinitarians included, believe in, and that is biblical literalism. That's the idea that every word of the Bible is literally true. 
you don't have to worry about how to interpret it because it means what it means at face value. Now, many mainline Protestant and Catholic uh, denominations do not believe in biblical literalism. Instead, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it was inspired by encounters and conversations, that it emerged over time, and that it had been retold, written, edited, and copied by Christians who were people. And as humans, we are frail, we are flawed, we are mortal, and that that flavors the text that we have inherited. And so it requires us to do a little investigative work of our own when we read our holy texts. It requires us to look and find and search out the spiritual truth, even if we can't agree with all of the literal things we find recorded there. And that assisted by the Holy Spirit and done in community to help gauge how far we go into interpretation that it is there that God illuminates for us what it is that God would have us know from all these stories and 66 books of the anthology that we love as the Bible. And as Charles Darwin began to do his investigation and tried to conceptualize what it was that he had seen and tried to create a theory that would explain these divergences that he marveled at, what he ended up conceptualizing was a theory of evolution. He certainly didn't come up with evolution. In fact, his grandfather was one of the original people that started to talk about evolution. And so that too framed how Charles was educated and what he was encouraged to explore. But as he did this, what he discovered was that it seemed to him that there were a couple of things that were very important about his understanding of evolution. The first is that he was the one that talked about common descent that there had to be some ancient ancestor. We talked a little bit about this in the sermon last week. And that if you could lay out all the organisms that had ever existed and died in the history of the earth, that you would be able to see and trace them back to the original, that you would see some kind of continuity, that things had been passed down, and even though there were divergences, that somehow and in some way you could see that they originated in the beginning. Now, the tension for Charles was that his family, being biblical literalists, believed that there was no change, that all the species that we saw on the earth at that time had to be exactly what God had created in the beginning, because that's what it said, that God had created them. And so they couldn't have changed or they couldn't have emerged as something new, but instead that they had existed and that new things weren't emerging because God had already finished creation and took a rest on the seventh day. So Charles was already beginning to see divergence between what he was told and what his experience and what his mind could understand. And just like many Christians, he wrestled with this deeply. In fact, oftentimes people have wrongly claimed that Charles Darwin was an atheist, a denier of the existence of God. And he said that he was not. His own writings say, I am not an atheist. I do not deny the existence of God. But instead, I think of myself as an agnostic that I don't have all the answers, and I'm still looking. And I can work with agnosticism. The idea that there are people who are looking for answers, that they haven't closed off their minds and their hearts to the movement of the Holy Spirit. The idea that Charles saw things and experienced things that were powerful and profound, but he didn't quite know how they all fit together with this concept of God Almighty and the redemption that we could have in Jesus Christ. Those give us hope that there is room for relationship and conversation and transformative experience 
that might bring all of those things together and the creation of faith. And so the idea that Charles Darwin was an atheist and some kind of enemy of Christianity is not accurate. It's not just. And it's important for us to recognize that what ends up happening is that a lot of Charles Darwin's theories that he wrote about in his book on the origin of species were located in a specific time and place with the knowledge that he had. We have since learned other things that would help to either change, negate, or even inform some of the things that Charles said, some of the things about our genes, our genetics. It wouldn't be until the 1950s that Watson and Crick would actually develop a design for the double helix and explain how DNA worked. Instead, Charles was working with rather rudimentary concepts that something seems to be passed along from parent to child. We ourselves have heard people say, you know, you act just like your father, or when I look at you, I can see your mother. And sometimes we can see even beyond our parents to our grandparents or to other relatives that there seems to be something about us that is passed along, that is shared with older generations and that we will share with younger generations. So he didn't understand genetics. And working with what he had, he didn't realize that sometimes we pass along good genes as well as bad genes. Sometimes we inherit things that are not helpful for us to continue and to find longevity in life and to produce others of our species. Instead, we inherit things like a propensity towards cancer or a gene, a gene that will manifest itself in a terminal illness. These are things that he didn't understand, but also part of the next thing that we have learned that he was unaware of, and that is called genetic drift. The idea that there are things outside of a species control that can change whether or not it is truly survival of the fittest. The idea that a natural disaster might wipe out the most ideal members of a species to procreate, or that even humankind can change the way that, pe that other species are able to carry on or whether or not they can continue at all. We ourselves in our travels across the globe and in our colonialism have introduced all kinds of new species to environments that are not native to them. And some of them have survived, some of them have intermingled, and some of them have completely annihilated native species. That's another example of genetic drift when we have our own say in what happens in the world. And so Charles didn't understand these things, but when you look at what he was able to understand at the time, it's quite miraculous, quite inspiring. And it's interesting to me that so many Christians throughout time have looked at Charles Darwin and railed at what he said and did and what he gave to the scientific community, and they picture him to be their adversary or certainly even their opponent, and all because this man looked at nature looked at the very same creation that we attribute in some miraculous and holy way to our God and marveled at it, had a profound experience and was so moved that his life's work became engaging with explaining and exploring the gift of creation. Meanwhile, 600 years before Charles Darwin, another person, this one out of Italy, had similar encounters and experiences, marveling at creation seeing there not just an insight into God, but actually calling creation a mirror of God, claiming that birds and animals were in fact siblings because we all had the same divine parent that created us. This person is known as Francis of Assisi, who 
gave us not only our opening hymn, but also the church's love and appreciation for creation, inspiring not only his sainthood, but also modern gifts like the blessing of the animals. That Francis of Assisi could be a paragon of our faith, could be applauded for the ways in which he expanded our understanding of creation, but that we don't grant that same grace to Charles Darwin speaks more about us than it does Darwin. One of the things that many Christians have held against Charles Darwin and his theory that has become known as Darwinism is that it talks about survival of the fittest. And it talks about the concept of passing on that which is best suited. And so therefore, superior species are the ones that will survive. But people co-opted this understanding. After Darwin was dead, people took this and perhaps through the embodiment of their own sin and their desire to bring forth their will, which often manifests itself in evil, they created social Darwinism, something that Charles never talked about, something he never upheld, and something he would certainly decry if he had seen how it was used. That people took the concepts and the theories that Charles Darwin had put forth and used them to explain that certain people of a different race were superior to others, or that there were people who, because of what they had inherited from their founding fathers, were not able to survive as readily, and so perhaps they shouldn't survive at all. These understandings were used to underpin everything from the anti-Semitism that fueled Nazi hatred in World War II, to the concept that there are some peoples that the entire world would be better off if we eradicated through genocide. The Nazis applied this same concept to the Romani, the Roma, the gypsies. And so they used science to undergird and uphold their racist views. Others have done the same thing around the world with concepts about slavery and who should be in charge and who should be subservient. These were not Charles. These were people co-opting him. We are not unfamiliar with this as we have heard the history of another person who wanted to give humankind something good, who yearned to provide something that would save lives, using the rational mind, creativity, and science to create TNT, dynamite. Alfred Nobel hoped to save lives of miners and of construction workers, but instead, like that of Charles Darwin, people in Alfred Nobel's lifetime started to take that gift and use it to hurt to maim, to kill. And he was able to witness this. And so he decided to turn aside from that and offer a way that would uphold his original beliefs and created the Nobel Peace Prize. We recognize that sometimes we long to give a gift and instead people take it and use it to hurt other people. And that's precisely what happened to Alfred Nobel and Charles Darwin. And we as modern Christians, it's our job to look back and see where we have been unjust to people like Charles Darwin and perhaps where we have been unjust to people who follow his theories and his beliefs. That instead of deciding that if you follow the tenets of Darwinism that you must therefore be a radical atheist and hate Jesus Christ, perhaps we should look instead for ways in which to find and highlight our commonalities. Someone who is a ardent follower of Darwinism is surely a lover of nature. Someone who believes that there is something powerful and profound in this gift 
And while we believe that it came somehow, some way through our God, it doesn't mean that we can't stand on common ground next with another person and discuss just how glorious and beautiful the creation is and how exceptional certain animals and insects and birds and fish are and perhaps find ways that we can learn from them too. Not just to enrich our lives, but to help save other lives. So we have a responsibility to engage in relationship rather than vilifying and objectifying another person in their position. It's the same struggle that we have seen in our history of the church before, when we vilified and ostracized Galileo. We recognize that sometimes new science can seem threatening, but what do we have to fear when God is ours and we know that we are God's? We should be hearing the very same prophets of the Old Testament who said, you have nothing to fear. You should fear not for God is with you. And that God will help us to navigate the explorations of the same world that God turned over into our hands. We who read the Old Testament know that it says there that we were given dominion. But that doesn't mean that we were given dominion to destroy, but rather to be good stewards. And that was precisely what Charles Darwin was advocating that we need to take care of this world, for it is truly marvelous, even miraculous. And as we recognize that sometimes there are things that don't mesh perfectly with Christianity's current understanding of theology or doctrine, it doesn't mean that the people who are espousing those beliefs don't mesh with our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, what it means is that we have to listen a little carefully. We have to lean in a little further we have to be willing to try to understand who they are and from where they are coming because it is often the one that is listening and experiencing another that determines whether they are a St. Francis of Assisi or Charles Darwin. But we are called to love them all the same. And perhaps what we find is that more often than not, we embodied Genesis chapter 5 Instead of looking at every human being, Charles Darwin or otherwise, and seeing their divine parentage, seeing that they were created in the image of God, what we do is we look and we see their earthly parents. We see their earthly genetic line, and we make decisions, and we judge them and, and establish their value based upon what we see and we hear and what we might experience, rather than choosing to be in a relationship, a relationship that will explore and explain more about who God is in and through them than who we see on the outside. It's our responsibility to hear what God was saying in the scriptures of Genesis. I have created all people, whether you understand it from the terms of first creation in Genesis or second creation in Genesis or something outside of the book of Genesis, I am telling you that all the world is mine. And I love each and every person so much so that I would come to them in Jesus Christ, offering myself upon the cross to provide them with the only means of grace sufficient for all human sin. And if we hear and receive that, it's our duty to hear and receive it in others, to offer it to them, not only as a sign of forgiveness and reconciliation, but our desire to fulfill the very same scriptures where Jesus says to us, I want you to take care of my flock. Take care of one another. Love each other. Feed, water, clothe, welcome, visit. 
each other, not just those who look and seem like you or those who claim me as you do, but all people are mine. And if Charles died without ever fully conceptualizing who Jesus Christ was to him or who God is to him as an agnostic, perhaps we take greater comfort still in the scriptures that go on to say that when we die, we rest in God, awaiting the arrival of Jesus Christ the second time when all of us shall be resurrected. And perhaps at that moment, that's when Charles will have the opportunity to see with his own eyes and experience with his own being the resurrected Christ. And in that moment, maybe that's when he will choose not just Christ and the grace of the cross, but to enter in for all time in the kingdom to come. Is that not what we yearn for ourselves, our loved ones, those in our community and those around the world throughout time, that everyone will see Christ, that every knee will bow and every heart will be transformed, that as many as are willing and desirous will enter into the kingdom to come and there for all time experience our magnificent and miraculous God. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Before we enter into our tithes and offerings, we want to share with you something that happened at our 930 Contemporary Worship last week. And so we're going to show you this video right now. Okay, Ms. McKenna. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Pour out your Holy Spirit, Almighty God, on McKenna. She is an incredible being of sacred worth, a child of God. And now she has taken her rightful place in the church, equal with all those who have gone before her and who are with her now. We rejoice that she is part of your work, not only within her family, her circle of friends, our community here, but now in the world as the body of Christ. She counts among her peers incredible Christians of the past, like the apostles and those early disciples, but also siblings who have been at work throughout the ages, like Mother Teresa, Julian of Norwich, Desmond Tutu, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., and so many other Christians who may be nameless and faceless to us, but known intimately by you. She takes her rightful place in this world and in this legacy to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and a servant of your love. May it be so. Give her what she needs. May your strength be made perfect in her. And may she speak your truth and love all of her days. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, Miss McKenna, you may rise. You are the newest member of the body of Christ. God bless you, darling. What you got to see was the baptism of McKenna Townsend. Her parents joined us in membership last week. And then McKenna got to be baptized. And so we want to share that with you because she is a part of the entire body of Christ, of which all of those who uh, enjoy our traditional worship are, but mostly because it is evidence that the Spirit has not stopped working, that the missions and the ministries of the church are very much alive at work and bearing fruit. And we hope that it inspires you as much as it inspires us to see a young woman decide to take those vows together with her parents and experience God's grace for herself. And the world will never be the same. 
So as we receive tithes and offerings this day, it is a reminder to us that the kingdom is continuing to be built. And even if we feel isolated, separated, and truncated, that God still does incredible things. And sometimes it is our presence and our hands-on work that is most visible. But sometimes, like this, it is our gifts and our prayers that are evidenced in the work that we saw just a moment ago. So as we rejoice for these things, I'd like to invite us to be in prayer for all those gifts that continue to enable for us to build the kingdom here. Let us pray. Lord Almighty, our God, our Savior, the one who has loved us before all others, that loves us when we do not even love ourselves, you continue to show us that you are very much present and with us and for us. Help us to embody that in our words and our prayers in the use of those spiritual disciplines that uphold us and mature our faith, and especially in our worship, our ministries, and our mission work. Whether we are currently putting our time and our talents and our gifts and our graces there, or whether we are helping to fuel and fund them through the offerings that we make to bring honor and glory to you. We rejoice that because the body of Christ has not ceased, that once more it sees new life, especially in that of McKenna and her family and new Christians like her all over the world. May we take our rightful place in this, supporting you with all that we are, but especially our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. Thanks be to you, almighty God, for allowing us to be part of your kingdom building and that one day we will take our rightful place there and celebrate with you for all time. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.